You're listening to Freshly Brewed, Episode 3, I'm your host, Jeff. You've heard the expression time and time again. It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Now this is a wonderful and appropriate expression. I myself have always been happiest when I am really enjoying the process. But we all have wondered, what's it like to reach an amazing destination? An extremely coveted, wealth-enabling, happiness-inducing peak of a mountain. Ask, perhaps a bit more bluntly, what's it like to become really rich and successful? This is a question and a topic that fascinates me. It fascinates me because this entire world, for better or for worse, is largely predicated on money and on success, and on achieving big goals. Yes, we are told to enjoy the process of achieving the goal, but for a lot of us, we wonder, what happens when we achieve a massive goal? We all have goals, whether clearly defined or buried deep within us, we're all searching for something with the hopes that an outcome, whether an altruistic one or a vain one, or perhaps a combination of both, will occur. But achieving big goals, becoming a millionaire, or moving into a mansion, or becoming the founder of a Fortune 500 company or world-famous nonprofit, these are far more elusive for a lot of us. So what happens to us when we reach those big life goals? When we become rich or successful? I've wondered if it's a never-ending ladder. Do our views and attached importance of those goals change with hindsight? Is money the incredible enabler we think it is? Do we ever fully feel satisfied? I have been so eager to unpack this topic, and I've waited to do so because I've wanted to unpack it with someone who is equal parts successful and grounded. Someone who has carved their own path and become what society would deem successful, but with the battle scars and sleeves rolled up to prove it. Someone who wouldn't be afraid to share the good and the not so good of setting big goals, achieving big goals, earning a comfortable amount of money, and climbing to the top of that previously defined ladder. Today, I have the absolute honor and privilege of speaking with Mr. Tim Ray, a highly experienced entrepreneur and successful businessman who has built and scaled many ventures from scratch. Tim has started and sold more than a few startups, has generated pretty big returns, and is involved in some really exciting ventures today, which he's going to share more about. But perhaps more importantly, he's a father, a cyclist, a volunteer, a speaker, a mentor, and someone who has a really interesting perspective. And I am so excited to speak with Tim today. Ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to go. Support for Freshly Brewed is brought to you by Rogue Wave Coffee Roasters. I have never had a shot of espresso that is as smooth and enjoyable and eye-opening as a shot of Rogue Wave. They have some of the best coffee equipment and drinkware that I have ever experienced. Whether you're looking for a Colombian bean with hints of sweet grapefruit and dark chocolate, or looking for something a bit more Guatemalan with hints of chocolate caramel and mandarin orange, you will find what you are looking for at roguewavecoffee.ca. They ship directly to your home. And if you mention the code Freshly Brewed, you won't actually get anything off your order because they're not an official sponsor, but they provide me with the fuel and energy to do this podcast, and I am so excited to spread the name about an amazing local coffee roaster. Rogue Wave Coffee Roaster, fueling podcast hosts since 9 a.m. today. Ladies and gentlemen, 
You're listening to Freshly Brew. Here's your host, Jeff Fenton. This is Freshly Brewed, episode three, joined here by video chat uh, with Tim Ray. We are each uh, respecting the the suggestion to stay at home, avoid physical contact. We're still able to enjoy a drink remotely and have a really cool conversation. Tim, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, virtual cheers. Virtual cheers. Virtual cheers. Before we get into anything, what is your what's your COVID setup at home? What's your what's your kind of day to day amidst this uh, pandemic? Uh, yeah, good question. So you know, I've been um, in the middle of launching my third startup. Um, working with a co-founder, um, my CTO, who's managing our dev team in India. So uh, <clears throat> pre-commercial launch, uh, really, it's been pretty great to be at home, um, hanging out with the fam jam. Uh, I got an eight-month-old son, uh, fiance. So we're kind of doing the activity and social distance walking in the neighborhood, but uh, probably having a couple conference calls a day via laptop. And you know, other than that, um, just kind of hunkering down and not going anywhere, which is... Um, been nice for change to to have to you know slow down a bit just out of curiosity how has your coffee consumption and your alcohol consumption changed if at all during this time you know uh it's funny i was just talking about this with uh someone the other day and um uh i just finished reading the book uh, atomic habits actually i'm not sure if you've uh ever heard of it but uh talking about you know making um changing your habits by making things obvious or not obvious. And so I've actually uh, totally switched off caffeinated coffee um, just by virtue of like not going by Starbucks all the time. Cause I feel like a lot of times when I was downtown or going to meetings, I was really just stimulated to drink lots of coffee by the fact of me coincidentally walking by a Starbucks. Mm. Now that I'm at home um, <clears throat> that, you know, that craving hasn't been the same. And so I've actually had a good opportunity to switch to, to, uh, decaffeinated coffee and um alcohol wise um you know one of my rituals is a scotch in the hot tub at nighttime to shut her down and that's actually where i do a lot of my um you know thinking about business and brainstorming and creativity um and so you know i probably have uh at least uh every other night probably a scotch in the hot tub and that's uh, kind of one of my rituals that i really enjoy so, so two things there I love. Number one, I love that you're going decaf because for a while uh, I went decaf. It was after someone told me that coffee is energy on credit. I had never really heard that expression. And I felt like I was so much more kind of stable and consistent during my day. And now I've worked a little bit of caffeine back because I got an espresso, an espresso machine to clarify and have become a bit of a snob in terms of grinding my own coffee and making shots in the morning of espresso. And so I've worked it back and I, I still feel those jitters, but I, I've just kind of come to terms with it. But the scotch in the hot tub, I I mean, that just gives me, that gives me all the feels. I, I do a scotch in the bathtub and, <laughs> and, I, and I love that. I absolutely love that. So to be able to then take it to the next level in the hot tub, I, uh, I, I commend you and feel like if this podcast ended now, it would still be a, still be a win just to have learned that from you, Tim. I've never even thought about a scotch and a bubble bath, but now you're giving me uh, some ideas. Well, and wait, if a little bit spills in, <laughs> then you're then you're bathing in scotch. And that's, yeah, 
So that'll be for our next podcast, uh, freshly brewed Scotch and Bath edition. So Tim, I, I know a little bit about you, but our guests don't. And I'd love to just hear in your own words, who you are, uh, what your story is. Um, yeah. Um, thanks, Jeff. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it to the Cole's notes, but, um, you know, so I'm an entrepreneur based here in Toronto. Um, I had, um, a couple of startups, uh, both, uh, from start to exit, um, a couple seven figure exits, um, taking companies from like $0 to uh, mid seven figures in revenue. Um, and I'm currently on my third, um, startup. So, 39, turning 40 years old. Um, when I was kind of in my mid 20s, I was doing the you know the corporate job, mid manager type deal, and um, you know I wasn't really happy, and I always had aspirations of becoming a full time entrepreneur one day. And it wasn't until I turned 28 that um, I um, I had had a, a bucket list of like a 30 by 30 that I had kind of jotted down when I was like 21. And, um, like many of us, we typically procrastinate until the very end. And, um, you know, what I did was basically, uh, on my list, there's a bunch of things that were fun and other things that were more concrete. And one of the things I really wanted to do was, uh, get my MBA. And so when I was uh, 28, 29, uh, you know, I applied, I uh, went to Queens to get my MBA and quit my full-time career job, um, solely with the aspiration of going back and doing case studies and getting around really high, uh, highly ambitious driven people and um, hopefully getting an idea for my first company during that program. And luckily, um, when I was in the last month of my program and we're doing our case, um, our case uh, um, projects, basically doing consulting for, for a company and presenting to the class is when I kind of stumbled upon uh, my first idea, which was in the Groupon space, we had one of our colleagues or one of our classmates at Queens was doing a presentation on the concept of group buying, which um, if anyone remembers back in 2010, 2011, when Groupon, Living Social, Team Buy, Deal Find, all these companies which had major VC funding were just exploding. All the rage at that time. I remember it. Yeah, there was, you know, like literally over 100 different daily deal companies at the time, everything from, you know, um, various like local geographies to different category niches and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. And I came up with a concept for a company called Food Scrooge, which was going to be leveraging my previous work experience with Maple Leaf Foods. Um, so I'd previously worked for Maple Leaf Foods for five years, doing commodity poultry sales, um, basically, you know, buying and or basically selling, you know, leftover chicken parts on the um, uh, commodity market, just like you would see like oil or gold traded. And um, so really developed like a base level knowledge of um, the food industry in Canada and realized that uh, there was a big opportunity to take uh, surplus inventory from the food service channel. So basically restaurants typically buy, you know, their meat in like 10 pound boxes, um, bulk frozen. And a lot of the times there's like excess inventory that they have nowhere to go. And so they'll just deep, dis deep discount it to their existing customers. And I saw like a huge opportunity to basically take this excess, uh, you know, inventory from the food service industry and sell it directly to, you know, end consumers for basically half the price of Costco. The, you know, that company Food Scrooge was on Dragon's Den um, in uh, season six, episode 10. And 
uh, from Eureka moment, um, me sitting in class, thinking of the idea during class, um, bought the domain name during class. Ten months later, um, I had sold the company to Torstar Digital, and it uh, became a part of uh, Wagjag.com, uh, which still exists today. So if you're going to Wagjag, you see Wagjag Grocery. That's um, the company that I sold back in 2011. So there's so much, so much about that that I that I want to ask, but I'll I'll try to to kind of pare it down. First of all. Because I know that a lot of people are wondering this, and I'm just so curious. What is the what is the Dragon's Den experience like? Is it like what you see on TV, or is there so much going on there that we just have no clue about? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I gotta, I gotta say it's probably very different for everyone that's on there for different reasons. You know, sometimes you have people that are on there with ideas that ideas that like lack seriousness that they're using for more entertainment value versus, you know, real businesses that, you know, have a commercial viability. But um, for my two times that I was on there, because I was on there both for Food Scrooge and my second company that I sold last year called Carnivore Club, um, you know, my pitch was like 45, 50 minutes. And at the time in 2011, when I was um, on the show auditioning and, and pitching, um, that's when Kevin O'Leary was still on the show. So it was uh, Robert Herjavec. And um, I had a very uh, notable interaction with O'Leary on the show, <laughs> and um, which made TV cut. But you know, they basically you know shorten and, and dice your you know sure. an hour pitch down to something that they can put into a seven minute segment on TV. And um, you know, it, for us, it was it was really uh, a cool experience. It was very nerve wracking because you know we were probably standing twenty or thirty feet away from you know the dragons on mm-hmm. on the stage. It's a very unnatural, you know, setting to be pitching, especially when they're on a slightly elevated platform. <laughs> so uh, we were definitely really uh, nervous, but uh, uh, you know, it, it went really well. So you're you've had this eureka moment. You're you know pitching and raising money for Food Scrooge. We know where that ends up, which is success. I'm curious at that point. Okay, so at that point as you're, let's say, just starting to really go down that entrepreneurial path. Are you thinking to yourself, this is my calling, I've always wanted to do this? In other words, how did this compare to your to your goals or your aspirations when you were younger? Were you in a place that you always knew you'd be? Or was this kind of some newfound territory that you were just rolling with? Yes, uh, you know, it's a really good question. Um, and I got to say that I, I always had the, um, since I was a teenager and I was, you know, everybody has different stories, especially entrepreneurs have different stories about, you know, things that they used to do to make money when, when they were kids, uh, you know, even as early as five, you know, I had the lemonade stand, you know, on the side of the road with the cookies back when it was like safe to do that in like 85 <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, trying to like, you know, sell things on the side of the road to make money to when I was in grade school you know, you know, selling and trading hockey cards and comic books and so on and so forth. So I had, you know, in my, by the time I hit my like late teens, early twenties, I had aspirations to be, you know, a full-time entrepreneur. But even as I said it at that time, I remember being very um, insecure and lacking confidence in my abilities to actually um, do it. If that makes sense. You know, it's one of those things that, um, you know, I aspired to do, but 
Um, I'm not sure I had the confidence and the courage to know I was going to be able to fall through with it. Even when I was 21 and I was doing my bucket list of like 30 by 30, I was saying that I was going to you know, get my MBA and uh, become a full-time entrepreneur, all these kinds of things. They were like very lofty things that I was writing down. I was like, to be honest, very scared as shit to be like writing them down because of the fear of failure, right? I didn't you know, want to commit myself to a, a goal that I thought was too big um, for me to accomplish. And, you know, to be, you know, full disclosure, I was very much like a lot of other, you know, entrepreneurs where, you know, I was a hardcore C plus, you know, student in high school. I was by no means, uh, you know, an honor roll type student. I was more focused on being on as many sports teams as possible than I was, uh, you know, in, in being um, all the other teenage, you know, social um, pressures versus being like um, academically excellent, excellent, right? But, um, um, you know, so for me, getting an MBA was a huge thing because, you know, um, I didn't really have the, the academic track record to necessarily get into a school like Queens and actually, um, you know, actually didn't even get accepted on my first time. It wasn't until they sent me my rejection letter that I called the director of the program and basically pitched him very hard on why he had to change his mind. And uh, luckily, you know, he did and let me in. Wow. And, um, and, you know, that actually ended up changing the trajectory of the rest of my life because um, what happened was after I had the idea for Food Scrooge, there was a, a business plan competition that uh, the school put on. It was a one year only. And because I did, did my program in 2010 and in 2011, we were still getting all of the um, government sponsored programs to help, you know, uh, uh, reignite the economy. And so they had a competition for $350,000 interest-free loans to um, basically new startups coming out of the Queens School of Business that year. And we ended up winning one of those competition, uh, one of those prizes. So we literally got the $150,000 prize. Um, in May of 2011, and I had sold the business in, uh, the, we had a letter of intent to sell in, in I want to say July 2011, and then it closed in September, and I literally cut them back the check for $150,000 in September that year, and they probably thought the money was like done for by the time they gave it to us, because you know we're all like 20-something entrepreneurs who uh, didn't really know what we were doing. They probably thought that it was like, you know, spent money but uh we uh surprised them when we cut them back the check for the for the loan repayment uh you know six months later as you're as you're setting this 30 by 30 which by the way i've never heard that expression i love that so as you're setting your 30 by 30 as you know things go on you got your corporate job your middle management job as you described you're you're getting your mba where honestly is money and fame in your mind. And, and, you know, I, I don't think there's a wrong answer because I think a lot of us prioritize or want to get rich and we do it for reasons we think are good for us. It, it will provide us flexibility. It'll, you know, afford us more time. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a judgment-free podcast. And I'm curious to know where in your mind was getting super filthy rich. Um, you know, so I, to be honest, zero, um, you know, fame or, you know, fortune aren't like the motivators. It's, um, you know, people that are really successful, um, from my experience, it's going after something that you're really passionate about or something necessarily that you're passionate about, but like being able to, um, execute really well on 
a certain opportunity. And um, fame and fortune are just a byproduct of you uh, doing an amazing job at that. You know what I mean? Like money will follow you if you take care of doing what you're doing. If you actually follow the money, it's uh, counterintuitive and you end up focusing on the wrong metrics. So for me, um, you know, when I was actually 20, uh, seven, 28, going to do my MBA program, um, you know, I had no money. I had to apply for a $64,000 at the time in 2010, $64,000 student loan. I had no idea how I was going to pay it off. If I was going to be in debt for the rest of my life. Um, you know what I mean? And it wasn't like a lot of other students that were getting their MBAs paid for by their companies. I just took the leap of faith that this was going to pay it off, pay itself off in the future at some point. And luckily when I sold my company the next year, I actually paid off my MBA within like 12 months after my graduation, which was, um, fantastic. And then, um, you know, on the full-time job piece, um, you know, one of the things that I made, a in my 30 by 30 was I didn't say that I had to be successful as an entrepreneur. I just said that I had to become a full-time entrepreneur. And for me, um, growing up in the country, I grew up, you know, in Belleville, Ontario, um, small town, uh, farming family. And, you know, there's a lot of people um, that are what I call coulda, shoulda, woulda kind of people. You know, a lot of people that make excuses for not achieving things or not trying. And for me, whenever I envision myself um, in the future and um, I'm coming across roads where I'm having trouble, like, taking on new risks or accepting things that are outside of my comfort zone, what I do is always picture myself you know, uh, 20 or 30 years in the future when I'm 50 or 60, mm-hmm. back at myself now and saying, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda. And and for me, what I've committed to myself is that I'd rather swing hard and miss than be um, someone that was too afraid to swing at all. And so, although it's maybe not the healthiest thing in the world, but candidly, you know, my biggest model for myself, especially earlier on in my craft days was like, you know, just don't be afraid. Um to, to don't don't be afraid to try. There's there's nothing worse than not even um, than not even trying. I want to double click on that because I mean I, I got goosebumps as you said it. There are so many people and and uh, you know I'm no different. You're no different that are just afraid to take risks. Whatever you know, risk is relative. So take a risk that you know, for them or for me or for you feels like a risk because of the consequence. You have taken tons and tons of risks and we're going to get to the successes, but I know there are for sure failures in there somewhere. What, I mean, and and again, you read so much of this startup clickbait, you know, you keep, you know, keep failing and it's still a success, you know, fail fast. You know, it's like failing has almost become cool. What is the the honest feeling in your words of failure of swinging and missing i mean listen i have a i have some really like nice wins um i also have some like really like horrific funny failures as well um you know one of the most notable ones is um coming on this podcast yeah no <laughs> but, uh, you know we had this idea you know and it's not necessarily new companies but new product ideas so with carnivore club my most recent company uh, Carmel Club, by the way, um, was uh, is still a um, a charcuterie of the month club. It's actually the only, you know, curated charcuterie of the month club in, in the world, and we operated operated in Canada, the U.S., U.K., and Australia. And I sold the business last year, um, 
And, um, you know, we're always looking for new product ideas and things to sell um, and funny, you know, new things to um, uh, to offer to our audience. And so when we came up with this idea for um, a meat bouquet or a salami bouquet, and mm. so we basically felt like created this sort of like cool holder and had these like 12 like kind of like long like salami Slim Jim style meat sticks that we put into like a bouquet style fashion. And for about Valentine's Day uh, 2018, I was like, okay, we're going to, you know, crush this. This is going to be like our big thing for the year. We're going to like get like huge sales. We actually even came up with a really awesome video, which was like a spoof on The Bachelor. Uh, one of the things that we let, we did really well with Carnival Club was doing just really irreverent, funny kind of sophomore like videos with like meat humor. And um, it was it was kind of a paradox because we were combining a really high end premium products and branding with like kind of very like you know immature you know sophomore humor. But it, you know it it was uh, as much as it was for getting attention as well as it was just for my own you know uh, shits and giggles, right? But um, long story short, is we did this um, you know big meat stick thing, and I bought one hundred twenty thousand um, dollars, actually you no know, more like one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of like meat sticks. Um, oh and I filmed a, a $20,000 commercial that we did in house and I spent $25,000 on actual like TV commercials on like shows like reality TV shows on like the women's network, you know, in the splice in the States. And I ended up having to donate like a hundred thousand dollars of meat a year later. Of <laughs> and, um, you know, so that was like an epic failure where, um, you know, it was one of those things. It's like, well, how do you like test the market on something? Because we're doing it for Valentine's Day, right? So you either like buy enough inventory to like hit it at the park, or uh, if you under order, then you like kind of miss the opportunity because you can't like do the you know mail equivalent on Valentine's Day other than that like one week of the year. So you know, I decided to go heavy um, and just swing for it, and um, I ended up giving a lot of like free meat to the food bank. So, um, you know, there's, I have a lot of, you know, things like that, which are kind of like, I would say like mini cases of huge failure. And, and I gotta say it sucks. Like, you know, when, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, you know, as I've become more experienced and more successful, it's like, um, it's a sliding, it's a sliding scale of like, you know, perceived risk and perceived success and perceived failure. And so, you know, a hundred thousand dollars isn't like a big number to me anymore but when you think about the things that like materially i could buy or you know i've done better with that money it still like really hurts to think that i like literally burned a hundred thousand dollars totally a lot of uh you know thankful like you know homeless people that got to enjoy those meat sticks you know i what i what i love about that is your your design i mean it sucks right and 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 i i have so much trouble with a lot of the you know i think i called it the startup clickbait of almost putting failure on a pedestal but it also sounds like there's probably you know a shitload of learnings from that that have helped you in you know countless times not making the same mistake again yeah and i don't think we ever um uh don't make mistakes because there's always going to be uh, it, it becomes a game of calculated risk and opportunity cost right mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think you ever make the same mistake twice, but you just keep on making more new mistakes. And over the course of like many mistakes and many successes, you kind of start to get comfortable with, you know, you know, the upsides and the downsides. And, and you just start to, you know, prepare yourself for 
um, you know, the downside and the upside and, and know that, um, you know, it's like investing in the stock market. You know what I mean? If you invest small, you're going to win small and you're going to lose small. If right. you want to have bigger turns, you have to invest big and, and have risk both ways as well. Right. So, um, it's the nature of the beast. So I'm really curious to hear about your first big win as you would define it. And what I've you know, come to learn is that you're not defining win necessarily based on getting super rich. You said it was actually close to zero when, when you were thinking about your goals, but I'm, I'm imagining that wealth and money is, is, it's going to be a byproduct of being successful. So if you look at the full picture, whether it's money, process, enjoyment, uh, fulfilling your, your, your own purpose, some combination, when did you feel like from a career perspective, you had that first big win where you were just like, holy shit, I've, I'm here. I'm on the, I'm on this map. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that first year of me being an entrepreneur where, um, you know, so, you know, me taking the risk out of my MBA program to say, okay, I'm going to become a full-time entrepreneur and I'm not going to go get a job and start to pay back this like gargantuan, um, you know, line of credit that I had taken out for my, my class. You know, I, I guess my very first win was, um, you know, first getting my first like a retailer to sign up for our like you know new business model getting them to believe in what we're doing even though i was just like a really inexperienced first-time entrepreneur and then the next win was um you know the first time was on tv was a show called tv show called bnn's the pitch and it was like a live Mm -hmm. 30 minute segment that i I was on and i was like nervous i could barely breathe before the show (laughs) you know and then i went on the show and and i like survived and I, i did well even though you know i didn't get any any investment and then actually, actually one of the judge, the panelists that was on the show that, that for my thing, we became good friends after. And then I got to say, like, you know, going on the Dragon's Den or sorry, then winning the business plan competition and getting that $150,000 prize. I was like, you know, I had really not win one, like, you know, anything uh, in the past, you know, other than sports uh, type things. But like academically, like business plan competition style stuff, you know, when I won that business plan competition for $150,000, I was like, holy shit, this is like, things just got real, you know? And then from there, um, you know, fast forward the LOI and selling, the, selling my company within, you know, uh, eight weeks of me launching and then getting my first, the way we structured the sale was, it was a $2.1 million sale. They gave me 100K up front and then 2 million on earnout. And, um, you know, so getting that first 100K that I, that I could uh, pay off my student loan, um, within a year of me graduating um, and then being in the Queens, you know, uh, you know, alumni magazine for me um, was very ironic considering I was like a very average, you know, student uh, growing up, you know what I mean? And they almost didn't let you in. Yeah. And, and they didn't even want to let me in to start. And then, um, and then I got to tell you, I, you know, even when I sold the company and then we crushed our earnout, and then a year and a half later in spring 2013, when um, I finished my earnout, and they gave me, um, the lump sum afterwards, um, you know, I, I didn't think I was ever maybe going to be a successful entrepreneur again. You know, even then I thought maybe it was a fluke. It was such a wild ride. Like I, blunk, I blinked for a second and really 
you know, I was only an entrepreneur for maybe like a few months because I sold the company and then started working for Torstar to, you know, scale my earnout. And so I actually had them give me my uh, seven figure uh, lump sum at the end in a paper check. And I walked into the local um, branch with my, you know, million plus dollar check and um, uh, I gave it to the teller just because I really wanted, you know, as douchey as it is <laughs> now, it's like, I just wanted to savor that moment because I was like, um, so insecure about my ability to like reproduce that a second time. And I just really wanted to, you know, um, have that story for myself. You know what I mean? And so for me that, that year of like all the, um, all the luck in the manufactured, um, um, success, um, and just fortuitous circumstances of like where we timed our exit. Uh, we just kind of like, we're very lucky having the right idea at the right time and the right place and the right partner to believe in us. And then being able to, to, uh, crush our exit. Um, that entire, that entire like year and a half to two years was just like an insane ride that, uh, you know, I'll never forget. And, um, you know, from there on, it was, um, you know, I had then the capital to definitely, um, you know, then start up my own company without having to raise money to be, you know, financially independent. Um, obviously not like crazy rich, but enough that, um, you know, I didn't have to like worry about like working necessarily and I could like focus on being an entrepreneur and starting my next company, you know? So that, that experience you described the, 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 the ride as you've, uh, as you've explained it is the feeling as good as you had thought it would be, because even though it sounds like your career has taken different turns and you really are only, con you know, you're connecting the dots, looking backwards to use the words of my, you know, one of my idols, Steve jobs, you, you obviously had an idea in your head of success. And when you started achieving actual material success, both in terms of money and in terms of affirmation from a company buying you and also the internal or intrinsic success of feeling like you're doing something that's being recognized and enjoying the process. If you combine all of that, is this feeling of success and said another way is reaching that peak of the mountain or achieving your goal, giving you a feeling that you could have imagined? Is it worse? Is it better? Is it the same? I'm, I'm so curious to know that. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's definitely going to be, uh, intimate and personal to every individual. Um, you know I mean? If, if you don't have the right motivations, it could be very fleeting. You know, it's like rooting for your mm -hmm. Raptors for 20 years to win the championship and all of a sudden they win and you're like, Oh, that was like felt kind of empty. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, but for me personally, um, because I, um, you know, putting those goals down on paper, you know, 10 years earlier and, you know, having it in my head that I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and be successful and, and, you know, not having a lot of people believe that I could do it, you know, not, I didn't have like high expectations that, you know, Oh, Tim's going to be, you know, a crazy entrepreneur and all these kinds of things. Um, you know, those were kind of chips that I also had on my shoulder that I really wanted to prove for myself as well as, um, you know, other people that I could do it. And for me, it was very sweet, you know, and, and I really did um, relish the um, 
the experience of, of having, um, you know, that successful outcome, because for me, it was um, very much um, liberating, I guess, to know that I was not limited by other people's like lack of expectations that like I was, you know, the master of my own domain, and I could achieve whatever I set myself out to no matter what other people, you know, thought, right, as a as an adolescent growing up, you know, I guess I'm built in a way where I don't really fit well into, you know, the corporate environment necessarily. So the hear that. continuing to go on and do new companies is, you know, I'm probably not a lot, uh, just like a lot of other entrepreneurs or people that aspire to be entrepreneurs is where you're always having ideas and you're always, um, you know, <clears throat> sifting through good ideas from bad ideas, you know, and, and pivoting on ideas. So for me, I just, um, going to idea number two and now and selling that and now idea number three, which is a company called Jet Savvy um, that we're launching very shortly. Um, you know, the, the thing is that uh, so long as I have the energy and the wherewithal to continue to be an entrepreneur um, and, you know, that sliding scale of, I feel like previously, you know, doing Carmel Club and Food Scrooge, I was kind of playing single A ball. You know, if you're looking at entrepreneurship in the realm of like, let's say, like as an analogy to Major League Baseball, you know, if you're doing... Um, you know, uh, uh, if you're an entrepreneur and you're, you're a full-time employed, and your company's doing, let's say, six figures, um, you know, let's say that's like single A ball. If you're doing a company that's, you know, seven figures, let's call that double A ball. And, you know, eight figures, triple A, and then, you know, the major leagues, if you can do a business that's doing 100 million plus in revenue, you know, like you're in the majors, right? If money was a zero in terms of importance, I'm curious... Is it still a zero now? Because obviously to, to play in the major leagues, uh, you know, you define that in terms of money and in terms of size of business and revenue, which makes me wonder, is is money now more of a factor for you or is money simply a, I guess, an indicator of what league you're playing in and playing in a bigger league brings you more excitement? Yeah, it's it's exactly... Um, that and, and so by by more money doesn't necessarily mean more money for myself personally so far as it means more total revenue because as you know I've gotten into from my first company and my second company where I owned you know 90 plus percent of the company and I had a, a very minority co-founder each time you know this time we raised 1.2 million angel seed round uh, for jet savvy and um you know, after we launch, we're going to be raising a secondary seed round or a secondary angel round. And, you know, as we go through this business, it's definitely going to be one of the types of businesses where you have to raise venture capital, so on and so forth. So it's undetermined as to, you know, what percentage of the business I'm actually going to own necessarily at the end of the day. But for me, it's like um, there is an indirect um, correlation to money for myself, but it's more about the... Um, measuring stick that I'm measuring my own success by, which is uh, scope and scale of the overall business. Because if I were to continue to try and um, start from scratch and sell businesses, I get to like, you know, three or four or five or $6 million in revenue. Um, now that I know how to do it um, and I've done it, I'm really not stretching myself and my capabilities as an entrepreneur. You know, having a business that I start and I have, you know, anywhere from five to 10 employees. Um, it's cool. And, and it's, it's definitely successful, especially by someone that hasn't done it before, but once you've done it a couple of times, mm -hmm. um, you get kind of like fatigued with trying to push your own boundaries. Cause you always want to better yourself and, and to try to, to push your limits or at least 
as an entrepreneur, I feel like it's one of the, your um, innate motivations is to continue to push limits. And so part of that is trying to bite off and innovate bigger ideas and bigger companies and more employees. And, you know, how do you build that like amazing company that has like the best corporate culture that has like a really cool social responsibility program that, you know, is talked about in the media in a very um, positive, influential manner, right? It's, you know, what is the, for me, it's more about legacy and what I want to be able to say in the old age home when I'm 80 than, uh, you know, the actual dollars that I have in my bank account, right? Speaking from my own experience, I have felt so fulfilled when I've solved a different type of problem. I think there's always that doubt. Am I going to be able to solve this type of problem? And being able to prove that is is a natural, I don't know, it's a natural high, but I, I digress. I, I'm and, and and you're you're a hundred percent right, and but it, it's also about making sure that you're doing it for you and not necessarily for, you know, um, anybody else. When you have the right motivations and you can achieve those goals that you set for yourself, and you're rewarded by your own, um, uh, your own internal reward system, it, it's amazing. When you know some people do it uh, for money to just prove the exterior world or like a guy that. Um, you know, has, you know, bad insecurity problems and he's doing it for the wrong reasons, that's where you get people that are kind of like unsavory and, you know, kind of, um, you know, sleazy a little bit. You know what I mean? I want to just dig into this for one second. I have both experienced myself and seen others experience this idea of making pretty big decisions based on what others are going to think. I, I know it's it's the human condition. It's hard to avoid. But, you know, I myself at times have felt tempted to to do something. I, I've stayed in places. I've taken jobs. I mean, I've, I've done things, and I know others do, with, with motivations that are not theirs or not mine. You know, how can people avoid this trap? Because it took me sort of not feeling true to myself so many times in a row to finally test doing something true to myself. And it's, it's, you know, felt incredible. And, but, but how do you, how do you convince others to, to, to do something where they're doing it for themselves? You know, for, for me, there's been, I would say a handful of times where, and I have those exact same pressures where, you know, I, I feel like, you know, certain decisions or social pressures based on external influence factors. And um, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, it's myself. Um, I, I read this book when I was 21. Um, it, was, it was right before I wrote that 30 by 30 called uh, Think and Grow Rich by uh, Napoleon Hill. It's a, you know, obviously a very classic famous book that mm-hmm. a lot of people have read. And if you haven't read it, it's really highly suggest you read it. But talks about, you know, 98% of the population don't have um, any goals in life or any direction where they're headed and have not really grasped, you know, the idea of like having like a business plan for your life um, of where you're going when you're like 20 up until like 30 years in like rich detail and description and um, and having a plan for what you want to achieve and, and where you're going to be. Um, a lot of people don't take that risk. And for me, whenever I, have those um, <clears throat> doubts or social pressures of what other people want to think. It's always about the coulda, shoulda, woulda, and do I want to be the person that's going to be limited by um, other people's um, 
um, expectations, right? Or do I want to achieve the things that I want to do for myself? And, you know, for example, I have a, a friend who's an entrepreneur. He's uh, in Pittsburgh and he really wanted to, you know, he had a service business where he could work remotely and he wanted to go to Costa Rica with his uh, wife and his um, kid and just like live and kind of check out and spend the rest of his life, rest of his life in Costa Rica, right? Doing, doing that really cool um, work, work-life balance. But, you know, they went down there and they were there for just over a year and realized that, you know what, Costa, Costa Rica wasn't all that they dreamed it would be. The infrastructure and the technology and the social, social isolation from family and friends in North America, um, you know, it didn't, didn't work out for them. But at least they went and they tried and yeah. they checked it off. And you would have never known that it wasn't a fit unless they actually went and did it. If they would, didn't ever try it, it would always have been that thing that when they were 50 or 60, you looked back and said, oh, that would have been nice to try. You know what I mean? So for me, it's always about trying it. And there's nothing wrong with changing your mind. But if you yes. try it, then you're never able to, um, you know, fulfill your, um, have the chance to fulfill your own destiny. I love that. My, my therapist calls it collecting data. I love collecting data because there are so many times when I think I'm going to love something. I collect the data. I don't. I'm not sure if I'm going to like something, collect the data. I love it. It's, it's an amazing, amazing lesson. So we're not going to get into specific numbers, but it is safe to say that you've done well financially. You know, it's, it's a product of hard work, a lot of probably scars that we haven't even really talked about. And a lot of people, whether they want to admit it or not, have the goal of getting rich, right? Whatever their definition of rich is, money is the measuring stick for a lot of us. I, I would love to know in your own words, you know, what, what's it like to, to you know, make a very nice amount of money? And, you know, specifically, what's, what's, what is the best part and what is the hardest part? Because I'm sure it is polarizing. Um, yeah, you know, so I've, I've had several million uh, dollars of, of exits, um, you know, 4 million plus of, of exits. It's not a lot of money compared to other entrepreneurs, but it's a lot to compare to, um, somebody that hasn't had, you know, their swing yet. Right. And, um, it's, um, it's, you know, it's great. And, 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 the fact that it gives you the ability to have the freedom to be um, independent and to take risks and to, um, you know, once you have your first win and you can put a little, once you can squirrel a few nuts away, it gives you the ability to take bigger swings, right? And it's all about incremental risk, right? You're, you're not going to, you know, necessarily the chance of you starting, you know, uh, a company that uh, is going to be a, you know, a billion dollar company. Your first try is not, going to happen, you know, the average entrepreneur uh, that is successful, you know, is in their 40s uh, on average. And so, um, you know, you always see these like heyday stories of like, people in their 20s, you know, um, being glorified, but, you know, they're rare, they're rare unicorns, right? So, um, you know, having a few wins under my belt is great because it, it, you know, I, I literally um, don't have to work for, you know, several years i you know i literally could sell everything you know my house in toronto and and you know everything and i can move to you know 
St. John's, Newfoundland and like just retire if I really wanted to. But, um, you know, it, it gives you the ability to um, swing hard and have the freedom to um, do whatever makes you happy. Um, but it's not going to be uh, what makes you happy on its own. Like money does not drive happiness. It just allows you the freedom and the independence, independence to explore the things that do make you happy, whether that's leisure or professional. One of the things you mentioned there, which which really sticks with me, is that it it allowed you to put a couple of those. Uh, do you, you say nuts away or yeah, squirrel a few nuts away? Okay, so if I, so if I'm squirreling a few nuts away, I can take a bigger swing. Now we're combining metaphors. That's fine. But what I find interesting is if I think about other parts of life where you when you feel confident, you will perform better and. You know, I'll often use the, uh, the the dating analogy with friends. Like, you know, when you're, well, maybe this is now going to make some people in relationships worried. But you know, when you're when you're in a relationship uh, and you you're out there, you know, often you you might attract more people because you exude that confidence. And in other words, you often can attract what you what you don't want. To bring that back to, because I just went on a tangent there. To bring it back to this example, it probably takes pressure off when you have more money, you're gripping the stick less tight and you can take, you know, much better shots. So I, I wonder if there's something from that, that anyone can learn irrespective of wealth, you know, to, to grip the stick less tight and to take big swings. Obviously you can't take a huge swing that's dependent on money, but perhaps there is something to be learned there in terms of taking swings and, and and not being so fearful of failure. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think you have to be, um, for me personally, and what I, you know, I, I do some uh, volunteer speaking just to, you know, various, you know, university classes about entrepreneurship. And, you know, the thing that I say is you have to be more fearful of uh, regret than failure, you know, and that's the quote. Mm. If you're more fearful of being regretful of not trying, then let that outweigh your fear of failure, right? Because, um, you know, we're resilient. You know, failure is actually like the best, you know, and you hear that all the time, but failure is the best learning tool, right? Um, way more so than success. You learn way more from, the, you know, the, the what you would do in retrospect next time, especially everything from, you know, dating to, you know, business to sports to, you know, taking that different, you know, move or shot or whatever in sports to what you would have said differently to that, you know, girl that you met at the bar to, you know, what you would have done differently in that business if you could have been, you know, more more successful and, you know, playing through that game theory in your head afterwards, you know, it will haunt you, but it will be the best uh, learning tool that you could ever have versus if you were going to win on everything you ever did. Regret is such a powerful thing. You you do things with with uh, the wrong intentions, aka fear of failure, and you will have regret, which is, as you're saying, so much worse or, or worse than just going into something with the right mindset and not getting the outcome you want, which is which is failure. What I'd, what I'd love to sort of be left with and leave the viewers w- or the listeners with is you know, what is your advice to people who have really, really big goals, both in terms of achieving them, but also in terms of the feeling when you get there? Yeah, um, it's a it's a great question. And I think that 
so my advice for anyone that has goals that both personal and professional, that um, first thing is, is that I think uh, everyone should do is write down on paper in cement, you know, what their goals are and try to be as specific and detailed as possible as to as what those goals are, because, um, you know, time flies by fast and we all tend to procrastinate. And before we know it, years turn into um, each other. And, you know, we had goals from five years ago that we, you know, we never got around to even attempting to achieve. And so my, you know, my, my first recommendation is really write down your goals and actually have a list of the things that you want to achieve and have both like uh, macro goals that like, what's your, you know, big hairy goals for five or 10 years out. And then what are your goals for this year? And what are your personal and professional goals for this year? Because unless you actually write them down and actually commit yourself to them, it doesn't mean that you have to actually achieve every single goal. It's fine. I, I have so many goals that I write down every year that I, <clears throat> I never get around to doing it. I've had learning to sail on my list for like five years, <laughs> but the thing is that it's been on my list for five years and every time that I revisit that list, it's a, a visual reminder of, oh yeah, that is something that I want to learn versus something that just falls off a list that I, I kind of forget about or that um, I, I just never get around to versus then there are other goals of like, you know, um, saving up this amount of money or paying off this debt or getting this um, certification or, or whatever it is. Um, the second thing is um, once you achieve it, you know, you have to, I think uh, either physically or, or, you know, mentally, you have to um, take a second to actually like celebrate and momentize, you know, that moment. So right. for example, you know, my very first um, company that I sold when I got that, um, you know, that check, you know, I, I took a picture of that check and, you know, it's not something that I go and I show everyone, but for myself, it was something that was just a, like a record of me saying, you know, from someone that came from, you know, a very small town, you know, farming type community that, you know, doesn't have a lot of people that actually start companies and have seven figure exits. You know, I wanted to, you know, actually get that paper check and go in and actually go through that experience and kind of celebrate this win, which was very meaningful for myself. You know, I didn't need to go and like brag about it or, you know, show mm-hmm. to a lot of other people. But for me, myself personally, it was something that I wanted to like really um, memorialize, right? And so it is really important that as you set these goals, that you actually take the proper um, time to, you know, memorialize what it meant for you at the time. Because, you know, even me now, 10 years on, um, you know, it's been 10 years since I had my first exit. And, you know, the the feeling isn't as vivid as it was back then. But I do remember what the feeling was like. And mm. so it's important to know that, you know, not only where you are, but where you've come from. Because, um, you know, it's funny, I'm, I've only been a full-time entrepreneur for, um, <clears throat> call it nine years. Um, you know, I had my, full, my first exit in, in 2011, and it's 2020 right now. And sometimes I try to, like, you know, for me now that I'm training 40, I try to envision where I'll be like when I'm 50. And when I try to think about where I am at when I'm 50, I try to think of like, you know, that hockey stick uh, ladder, right. Of, you know, every startup has this like hockey stick of revenue, right. Sure. Well, I try to think of that as far as like accomplishments and achievements and personal experiences, both fun and professional. And when I think of like where I was in my like late twenties, literally with like no money, student debt and uh, becoming an entrepreneur for the first time, um, to where I am now, nine years later, 
and I think of like the exponential multiplier of where I could be nine years from now, you know, I get really excited about um, what's possible because there's no way nine years ago that I thought that I would be where I am today. Um, you know, so I'm ha- you know, not that I could have done better. I, I definitely could have done better than I did today, but I'm definitely happy where I am. And so I'm very excited and motivated by if I continue to grind it out and hustle and have passion for what I'm doing, where I could be, you know, nine years in the future. Something that just hit me was, you know, you almost applying the the hockey stick graph to our own lives. I think so many people, including myself, you know, we think it's that that straight line and, you know, we'll say, oh, it's never a straight line, but we all kind of still hope and think it's a straight line. And yet there's so much benefit in sometimes having to take a step back to go two steps forward or to be, you know, in debt and like a boat without a rudder, not that you were a boat without a rudder, but, you know, have, trying to figure out your direction, knocking on the door of the the dean to try and get into a school, you know, the, these experiences. And as you said, these challenges are what are what make us who we are. And as cliche as it is, without those things, I don't think we would ever take one or two or, or three steps forward. So it's, it's inspiring. And I've, I've absolutely loved chatting with you today, because I think you, you've gotten very real about, about success and about goals. And, you know, some of the really cool experiences you have, I, I could, you know, talk, talk with you for hours here. But, um, but, you know, I think this is a fantastic place to, to wind it down. And I just want to, I just want to thank you, Tim, so much for, coming on the virtual podcast here, having a, a virtual drink with me and opening up and sharing your story. It's uh, It's been fun. And uh, thanks for having a, a scotch and beer with me. <laughs> and anytime. And next time it'll be, uh, maybe I'll be in the bath and you'll be in the hot tub and that'll be uh, episode two. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I could hesitation sense through the, uh, through the microphone. Thank you so much, Tim. All right. Cheers. Buddy. Bye. Cheers.